tape over. You might be wondering a few things, and I'm guessing that because I wonder a few things also. One, so, like, because a bank run is a thing, if everyone did a bank yank and took all the money out of all the banks, and the Fed is only holding a percentage of what you put in, then the Fed doesn't really solve anything by holding on to reserves, because if all the banks themselves did a bank yank, then the Fed would be in the same position, right? No cash, because they don't have the entire amount in reserve. Two, if money was created when the bank loaned it out, you put in $100, the bank kept 10 and loaned 90, but you technically still have $100 in the bank, then even if that loan is in default, that $90 still exists somewhere, even if the FDIC reimburses you. In our example, that $90 went into a pair of Air Force Ones. Maybe they were on sale, who knows? But that $90 did what, exactly? It paid for part of the wages and taxes at the Air Force One store, it paid rent, it paid shipping, it paid for the wholesale cost of the shoe. The $90 was absorbed into the market the moment broke-ass Becca bought her shoes. Three, if the Fed injects money into the economy to be loaned out, but only a reserve amount must be kept behind, then the entirety of the monetary system is based on debt, or at least it's based on perceived value, right? Right, apparently. This is known as the debt funnel or money multiplier. It's really known as the money multiplier, and I just happily call it the debt funnel because when you turn you know, a funnel upside down, it looks like a rainmaker. When you turn a rainmaker upside down, it looks like a funnel. Anyway... If $100 is injected by the Fed, $10 is reserved, and $90 is loaned out with interest. Say that $90 they got loaned out walks right back in the door to be deposited. Then $9 is kept in reserve, and $81 is loaned out. Then that $81 walks in the door to be deposited, and $71.90 is loaned out. Then $71.90 walks in the door. Again, it's all Russian dolls. That $100 is eventually paid back to the Fed, but never in full because math. But it has created dozens of dollars in the functioning economy, me and you walking around buying Air Force Ones. And also, we are paying taxes on the debt, so sales tax, payroll, income. For the overarching question here is, if the money has really been created, then what difference does it make if we rush to the bank to cash out? The dollars we have in our bank accounts represent our share of the economy as much as cash deposits, or flogging the banks with dollars represents our contribution to the economy because that money can be loaned out. Have you ever heard economists lament that the economy isn't doing great because people are saving their money instead of spending? You know, money being tied up in savings accounts rather than circulating in the economy. That's directly at odds with how our monetary system functions, because money saved means money available for loans, right? You should put your money in the bank because then the banks can loan it out, right? What economists are really lamenting is that people aren't taking out loans, not necessarily because they are thrifty and responsible, but because they can't afford to pay them back. Our economy can only function if people are in debt and have motivation to pay off that debt. That means getting a job. You have to do something to bring in some kind of dollar because even if you barter or trade, you have to pay taxes on your gains and your property. Taxes are motivation for people to join the economic system. It's not even motivation. It's like being voluntold to do something. Five, why can't we all, all at once, cash in on the value of our digital dollars without causing bank failures? After all, the money has been created by being multiplied within the monetary system. If all of a sudden the people want 50 quintillion dollars in cash, then that means that money actually exists if that's the total value of all of their bank statements. But with the reserve system, it would appear that the government can't back up all that wealth. Nations measure their wealth in gross domestic product and gross national product, the total values of goods and services, but not the cumulative value of currency distributed because we have no idea how much money is actually out in the world. We can calculate and estimate, but we don't actually know. You might think that sounds hyperbolic, but do you think it's possible that at some point in the history of money there has been at least one accounting error, a missed coin or dollar that goes unaccounted for. It's naive to think we know the exact currency value of one nation or all the nations combined. The idea that dollar shortages are a real thing that we should concern ourselves with is absurd from the start. If we have created wealth, even through debt and reserves and all that, then the wealth is real. So how does the Fed create $1 billion? After all, it can't loan out reserves. Those are reserved. Well, they buy securities from the treasury, called treasury bonds, and then add it to a bank's reserves, meaning more money is available for lending. 
That money goes to government, state or local, businesses, and individuals. More on this in a little bit, but the Fed never loses money. Never, ever, not even once in its entire history. It says so right on the website. How long do you think the U.S. debt cycle lasts? Influxes of cash, loans being handed to corporations, small businesses, and people to buy homes and cars, home equity lines of credit, making the deposits and setting aside reserves, and loaning out more money and making payments and taxes until eventually the money available, the cost of money available, doesn't meet the inflated prices of the market due to the heavy demand. That means lots of money means lots of demand, lots of competition, lots of sales. Well, if you were to measure by average time between recessions, starting from the end of World War II, then the U.S. debt cycle lasts about six to seven years on average. That doesn't account for the length of the recession or anything complicated, just the time from the start of one recession to the start of another. Sometimes the recession is long, sometimes it's short. Do you want to guess the most common non-financial corporate debt maturity length? That's seven to 13 years. Non-financial corporate debt is commercial and industrial loans, treasury bills, and credit cards. Maturity length is the period of time it takes to pay off a loan in full. Our curiosity about the physical dollar itself and the nature of bank runs isn't naive. It, at least that's what I tell myself. After all, when I log into my bank account and look at the balance, what do those digital numbers represent? Physical dollar bills. I know that I can go close my bank account and they will put $5.41 in my hand right now. I haven't taken that money out of the economy. Most likely, I'm going to go waste it on pixie sticks or something. But that does mean $5.41 is taken out of reserve. If I took out a loan for $5.41 to buy pixie sticks, that'd be great because I'll wind up paying what, like $7 with interest? I get pixie sticks, the bank gets the reserve back, and it makes money. Plus, when the pixie sticks salesman comes in with my $5.41, the bank can loan out part of that too. But taking the money out of my account and spending it doesn't do a damn thing because it's going to walk right back in the door again as a deposit, and the bank will just loan it right back out. Except they're loaning out less because they've missed an opportunity to multiply it. That might be hard to follow, but I promise you it makes 100% sense. All right. Pop quiz, hotshots. If you wanted to get people to take out as many high-value loans, like mortgages, as possible, what would you do? Did you say offer a lower interest rate? Because that is the correct answer. As long as you're borrowing money, the economy functions, and the more you borrow, the better off we all are. The issue goes all the way back to the Fed acting as a repository for bank reserves in the first place. The Fed is, by its very function, insolvent. An observation that will possibly lead people to believe I have brain damage. But bear with me. Insolvent means owing more money than is available, unable to pay debts. Let's go back to how the Fed generates money. It buys securities from the Treasury. In our example, we use Treasury bills. And here's how they work. Say you want to invest your money in a safe, secure, reliable fashion. You want a guaranteed amount of money after one year. Say, $10. You buy a treasury bill or T-bill now for $9 and then just sit on it for a year and then it will be worth $10 when you cash it in. So if the Fed is buying billions of dollars of T-bills as it does, then in a year the Fed cashes them out for more than they paid. The Fed can use the full value of the T-bill to pay interest on reserves, for example. So if the Fed needs money in the future, it just goes and buys it from the Treasury. And if the Treasury needs money, they sell bonds, T-bonds up to 30 years, notes, T-notes up to 10 years, and bills, T-bills. You can go buy some T-paper right now. See how all that works? When the government needs money, it just borrows money from itself and pays it off when it pays itself. It's a perfectly logical system. The government will never run out of money because it just makes it up. But the problem is that it always has to make more because it's insolvent and our entire reality is just a fucking fever dream. Just one teensy, tiny, itty-bitty problem. The government will never have enough money. It collects revenue by selling bonds, notes, and bills, losing money in the long run because it's like paying a loan with interest, and it only collects a portion of your taxes, and it only reserves a portion of the money deposited into banks. It's borrowing from itself and paying itself. So, like I said before insolvent. It's only a matter of time until we go completely broke. I'm okay, I'm half fucking with you, but so is the money multiplier system. Hypothetically, if we issued $100 to the public, reserved $10, and loaned $90 with interest, then the person who borrows $90 is going to owe, say, $100. So when that person repays it with interest, we should have $110. But 
$110 doesn't exist because we only issued $100. Where is the borrower going to get the extra $10 in interest if there's only $90 in circulation? Even if you split that $90 into tiny fractions of a cent to make it go a long way, that doesn't change the value of the initial money injection. The only solution is money creation. Economics is all about supply and demand, yet the accepted protocol is for the government to restrict the flow of dollars in hard times when the dollar is not only in demand, but vital to survival and dignity. Yet the fundamental concept of supply and demand is the only one that the government doesn't follow, which in simple terms, a bank run is nothing more than a demand for dollars. If we slashed government spending, eliminated Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, VA benefits, closed most of the government departments that are totally incompetent and solely focused on managing income and expenses like you and I do when we budget, guess what? we're still completely and totally insolvent. The numbers just get smaller. As long as the money going out gets multiplied, the government never technically has the cash to back it up. Thank God for computers, otherwise we'd have been broke a long time ago. Even without computers, we'd never go broke. It's called fudging the numbers. Fudging the numbers is a technical accounting term. It means changing dollar amounts to show you have more or less money depending on why you're fudging the numbers. Here's a dumb question. Why does the United States, the actual government, need dollars? To pay its bills, right? What bills? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, VA benefits, mature T-bonds, notes, bills, payroll for all those incompetent government agencies, treasury bills held by foreign countries, education, interest, transportation. Fair enough. If we're overspending, then eventually we're going to run out of money and someone is going to come serve us papers and then we have to go to court and it's a whole thing. Trust me, it's a whole thing. But we've already established that ours is a debt economy. The debt issued turns into real value in the economy, so the amount of money collected by the government isn't as valuable as the debt it issues. Not only that, when you get right down to it, what's the real point of the government holding any money? In the introduction to this book, I posed several questions about our economy in terms of my daughter's favorite game, Roblox. For the most part, I've left it to you to figure out how all that ties in, but when I wrote that section, I had this very exact part of the book in mind. So I'll copy and paste the most outstanding part and we'll go from there. Quote, my daughter does chores for Robux instead of cash money. Cash money is worth less to her than fake online in-game currency. End quote. I wrote this after something weird happened with my money. I offered my daughter $10 to do some chores. Clean the kitchen or pick up all her shit from the living room. I think it was the kitchen. Doesn't matter. Anyway, she did the chores. I took a $10 bill out of my wallet and handed it to her. And then about five minutes later, she came back holding the $10. She wanted to use the $10 to buy Robux. I got my $10 back and in exchange, she got a digital currency worth absolutely nothing in the real world. It's $10 in a game, in an online game. It has nothing to do with me or the $10 she handed me. So what I really handed her was a placeholder, a coupon or a voucher, if you will. She didn't give a shit about what it was, just what she could do with it. The thing is, anyone could hand her $10 and she could bring it to me to get Robux. If I want to limit the amount of Robux she earns and not have to exchange every dollar she finds in the gutter for Robux, then I could just make a paper voucher worth only Robux and only exchangeable within my house. They can have my face on them and a picture of my house because, hey, why not? If I had two kids, maybe they would trade them back and forth. So a few things here. One, because I print and issue the vouchers and don't play Roblox or adopt me, the vouchers have zero value to me. I don't give a shit about Roblox. I just want the goddamn kitchen cleaned from time to time without having to do it myself. In this scenario, where I'm printing and issuing vouchers, I'm the government. I'm issuing paper vouchers worth something to someone else and all I have to do is buy like $10 of Robux every time she earns enough depending on the exchange rate. Two, if I owned the game Roblox, like I was the developer of the game and owned all the servers, then I could hand out vouchers to everyone, and then when they redeem the vouchers, I would just credit their account with in-game currency. It doesn't cost me anything except the time it takes to enter the numbers. In this scenario, I'm still the government, but now I have to deal with infrastructure. Three, if the kids want to exchange vouchers, I don't really give a shit. I might put a rule in place that for every 10 vouchers they earn or trade, they have to give one back to me because that keeps them motivated to keep earning more vouchers because every time they exchange them, they have to pay a little. I'm still the government, but now I'm making the kids pay taxes. Again, the vouchers are worth less to me because I make them. I don't play the game. They're not just worth 
less to me, they're actually worthless to me. Four, if for some unknown reason adults started wanting vouchers and doing stuff for me and all I had to do was issue Robux paper that all I had to do was type in some numbers on my computer to redeem, then I would probably, like, I don't know, buy more servers and hire more developers to make the game better so people keep playing. And the whole time, I'm just handing out vouchers like, I can't believe 10,000 vouchers gets me a whole new server warehouse. And I wonder how many vouchers it will cost to build a railroad. Oh my God, there's a guy who says he'll build me a railroad for 100,000 vouchers. My God, I have to print more vouchers. That's going to be expensive. I wonder how many vouchers that will cost. Oh, good thing I print the vouchers. Now I can pay to print the vouchers too. Five. In example number four, I have become a sovereign nation with a fiat currency. As long as people perceive value in the voucher, then there is value in the voucher. Fiat currency has no real value, not in precious metals, not in the weight of corn. It is worth nothing other than what you think it's worth. Say someone wants $100 worth of vouchers one year from now. Well, okay. I have no use for $100 because I use Robux vouchers and apparently the other person has no use for their money because they want to exchange it for a Robux voucher. So I say, hmm, okay, I guess you tell me what you can do with your $100 and I'll tell you what you can buy with that many vouchers. Oh, you can buy a pair of Air Force Ones? That's 20 vouchers. Here's a V-bill for 30 vouchers one year from now, and I'll take this funny-looking piece of paper with an old slave owner on it, this Benjamin, you call it. Now we have an exchange rate, and guess what? The $100 the person just spent means absolutely nothing to me because they wanted my voucher, and all I have to do is print 30 of them in a year and hand them over. So I throw the $100 in my reserve pile, which is really just a trash warehouse for everything that people have traded me for my vouchers, because my vouchers are one of the five most valuable vouchers in the world. The only thing is, I can't print the other vouchers, I can only print mine. So I have to keep the value up, which isn't hard because I spent a couple trillion vouchers on machines that do war so I can always threaten people to use my vouchers. Works like a charm. Anyway, these are the scenarios that run through my head when my daughter asks for fake money while turning her nose up at $10. America's monetary system works like examples four and five. It's all made up and the government has no use for it. Seriously, say there was a bank run and all the reserves were depleted and you had Fox News pundits screaming about how the country was overleveraged and this is all the communist fault or whatever they say. Bad news, right? Social security payments would stop, all the wars would stop, the District of Columbia sends the White House a water bill they can't pay so no one gets to shower or brush their teeth. It'd be horrible. And dumb. In reality, everything gets paid because that's the power of personal computing. Or government computing. People still get Social Security monies as either checks, deposits, or buckets of wheat, and the White House can still fill the pool under all the reporters in the press briefing room. I bet you didn't know there was a pool in there. It's like this. The physical money matters until it doesn't. In fact, the creation of wealth by the distribution of zeros in checking accounts matters until it doesn't. All that matters to me and you is, do we have jobs, will we get paid, and will whatever we get paid buy us food? I've searched high and low for an economic model of everything is made up and anything can be money, but I can't find one. The abstraction of the U.S. dollar has some very real benefits. One, it doesn't matter how much gold or silver you have because the dollar is worth one dollar all on its own. And the U.S. dollar used to be based on gold and silver by weight. Quote, that the money unit of the United States being by the resolve of Congress of the 6th July 1785 a dollar shall contain of fine silver 375 grains and 64 hundredths of a grain, and quote, that there shall be two gold coins, one containing 246 grains and 268 thousandths of a grain of fine gold equal to $10 to be stamped with the impression of the American eagle and to be called an eagle, one containing 123 grains and 134 thousandths of a grain of fine gold equal to $5 to be stamped in like manner and to be called a half eagle, end quote. If you want to get abstract, you can really hammer on this idea of value and worth. Is gold or silver worth anything if there's nothing to buy? What are the real tangible items you actually need? These are simple and far from abstract. They are food, clothing, lodging, clean water, the things you would need to survive on a show like Naked and Afraid or Alone. If you want to get more abstract, you can add the things that we argue about. Healthcare, education, access to modern technology and infrastructure. And if you want to get into things that we don't even have a fundamental understanding of, 
but hold dear anyway. You could say love, community, family, and happiness. There is no direct connection between gold and silver with any of these things. There's really no direct connection between these necessities themselves. Dirty water is acceptable if it doesn't make you sick, and that redefines our understanding of dirty. You have the microbial type dirty and the sediment type dirty. Family can be by birth or by association. Are, are we still talking about economics? Indeed we are. The second value of abstracting something like money is that it gets us to view an entire monetary system as being rational, logical, well thought out, and useful. After all, once you start talking about things like T-bills, money multipliers, and monetary aggregates, you rather quickly forget the fact that everything is based on money created from debt and that the dollar is made up in the first place. This was something Adam Smith admired. You no longer needed to be burdened by the physical weight of something valuable when a representation or abstraction will do just fine. In fact, all the better for it. Abstract. I don't usually go for straight dictionary meetings, but abstract is 100% on the nose. Both detached from a specific instance and difficult to understand fit the bill for money, monetary policy, and economics as a whole. The dollar is detached from anything specific as we've already discussed, not gold, silver, or clamshells. And because the economy is built on this detachment, how we manipulate it and how it is studied are indeed difficult to understand. That abstraction, that difficulty of understanding, has two advantages. The first being that you can get really, really complicated with economic models and put two unrelated things like productivity and gross domestic product together and theorize about them, even though you're totally fucking wrong. The second advantage that money abstraction has is that it allows people, some well-intentioned like me and some not, like Orrin Hatch, to dumb things down so we understand them better. Gross domestic product is the total value of all finished goods and services within a country's borders right now, or 10 minutes from now, or over the course of a year, whatever. I'm going to leave this alone. I mentioned gross domestic product, I defined it, and I'm moving on. And I'm going to move on to picking on Orrin Hatch, because maybe by the time this book comes out and you're listening to it, he'll be dead and I won't have to worry about running into him at Kroger. Hatch is a Republican, whatever that is nowadays. They used to be all about having one big government and they owned slaves, but look at them now. And he was a Republican in 2011 when he delivered a very blustery speech on the Senate floor in response to Barack Obama's 2012 proposed budget. He says some dumb things that sound smart in the abstract. They understand something that apparently has eluded the best and brightest over on Pennsylvania Avenue. We are out of money. Even with $2 trillion and possibly more in job-killing tax increases in this budget, it still comes nowhere close to reining in our deficits and debt. For years, we've heard Democrats say that if rich uh, people and businesses paid their fair share in taxes, we could balance the budget and reduce the debt. Well, they sure tested it out on this budget. They soaked the so-called rich and American businesses with a fire hose, and yet we are still facing trillions in debt and hundreds of billions of dollars in deficits. After the much maligned Bush tax cuts expire and undermine small business job creation, according to the president's own numbers, we will still have to borrow an additional $7.2 trillion through 2021 to pay the bills. The bills that are becoming due from the Obama administration spending policies. And then Hatch makes my favorite all-time 100% you'll never get me to say no to it comment about book balancing. Now the basic point that I'm making is that tax hikes aren't like finding a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. That money has to come from somewhere and there will be consequences to redistributing it. Moreover, as we saw in the budget release today, even spiking taxes by over $2 trillion will not help us to balance our books. Abnormally high spending drove the deficits of the past. It is like driving the deficits of today. Now, there's a lot to say about both comments, but let's unpack the second one, and I'll leave it to you to read the footnotes for the first. Oh, hell, I'm just kidding. I like you so much. I'll read the footnotes for you. Tax hikes aren't like finding a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. Man, if only all senators could put tax policy in terms we could all understand. 
This comment about rainbows and pots of gold doesn't make any fucking sense because nothing is like finding a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow because the pot of gold doesn't exist, even in the abstract. What does exist, at least through our government, is a tax system. So tax hikes are more like looking at a rainbow and saying, huh, a rainbow. Well, let's increase taxes on the wealthy, yes? That money has to come from somewhere, and there will be consequences to redistributing it. I have no fucking clue what the threat is here, but it is a threat, right? I mean, the money comes from wealthy Americans, and the consequences for taking more taxes from the wealthy Americans and using it for other purposes is laced with danger? For whom, and what specifically? Moreover, as we saw in the budget release today, even spiking taxes by over $2 trillion will not help us to balance our books. And there it is. This is what makes Hatch's comments my all-time favorite. Hatch has taken the whimsy of the rainbow comment and cemented it with the folksy tale of book balancing. Book balancing is the act of when you're learning proper etiquette and the headmistress stacks books on your head, so you mind your posture. Obviously, Hatch is talking about accounting books, or in terms that simple, dumb people who will inevitably watch Hatch speaking on Fox News would understand— the goddamn motherfucking household checkbook because, goddamn it, we have a sophisticated government, but fuck, we still use a goddamn ledger and put on our pantaloons one leg at a time. The U.S. government does not have an accounting ledger like a business, nor does it have a checkbook that Mitt Romney and Bernie Sanders pour over in the evenings while everyone else is asleep muttering, oh, it's going to be tight this month. If you think you've understood the economy to the point of equating it with how you handle your finances... You're a fucking idiot. Abnormally high spending drove the deficits of the past. It is like driving the deficits of today. Okay, everyone knows what the deficit is, yes? No? Uh, good. Let's say the Fed has just injected $100 billion into the economy. That's a deficit. We might spend $1 billion on science research here and $5 trillion on the military there. It's all government spending. It's all deficit. Social Security and other entitlements are, and I will say this again later, not deficits. Entitlements are federal programs that allow people to receive certain benefits if they meet the eligibility criteria of that program. They are non-discretionary programs, meaning they don't need budget approval, and that is important. So, according to Hatch, abnormally large spending drove the deficits of the past. Well, any government spending drives all deficits into perpetuity. Forever. Deep down into the abyss where neither space nor time can penetrate. Past, present, future, and all the nooks and crannies of the fourth dimension we can't even comprehend. If you spend money, it's a deficit. Now, what Hatch means by abnormally large, I can't be sure because that's a throwaway. It has no meaning. It's like subprime when cost far exceeds value. It has no concrete definition. Now, what he says isn't false, but it's like when you tell your dog you love her, but you do it in a mean voice. You might be saying a true thing, but you're being a dick at the same time. The Republican argument is that the money the government spends simply isn't coming back in full value in the form of taxes, so we have to cut spending. But that money can't come back in full value ever, because when the money leaves the government, it becomes more money that isn't backed up dollar for dollar with our reserves. The only way to recoup 100% of the money spent is to tax it back at 100%, because that is what a balanced budget looks like. Net out, net in. Now, gross and net. What is gross and net income? Okay, imagine you're fishing and you see a thousand fish, so you put your net in and pull out a dozen. The fish in the water is the gross, and the fish in the net is the net. Now, listening to all these things that Orrin Hatch says, it can be kind of scary. Those are big numbers, and reading through Obama's 2012 budget proposal, something does indeed stick out. Obama's proposal called for a 30% reduction in deductions. Those are the things you can write off on your taxes. And they call for a 30% reduction in deductions to offset the alternative minimum tax for high-income earners. Now, you and I, we are not affected by the alternative minimum tax because we are, in tax terms, poor. But the alternative minimum tax is actually fucked, bear with me, because one, you have to do your taxes twice, and two, in identical scenarios, earners in states with higher taxes pay less than earners in lower tax states. And at first, this might seem like a no-brainer, like, yeah, they have more to burn, so sure, but 
Take two states at the extreme ends of wealth. California with the highest income tax in the nation compared to North Dakota, one of the lowest. And if you consider the living conditions and earnings in both states, and by living conditions, I mean shit. I mean, just Google pictures of North Dakota. They don't have jack shit there. And then in your heart of hearts, does having two separate tax payments for exactly the same earners that costs rural Americans more, does that make sense? But I digress. What Hatch doesn't like, and I'm just assuming here, is that Obama's specific tax plan calls for a 30% reduction in the deductions that wealthy Americans can take according to the alternative minimum tax, capping them and using the higher taxes paid to offset the disparity between taxing, say, North Dakotans less and Californians more. But another thing stands out in the 2012 budget proposal, and that would be allowing the high income and estate tax cuts to expire, which Republicans had previously bargained against by threatening to allow tax increases on middle-income Americans. In case that's too many words and I did too much talking and I had our time following, I'll distill it down. Republicans threatened to increase taxes on middle-income Americans so that they wouldn't lose their high income and estate tax cuts. So we'll just leave it at that. Hatch also makes the comment that we, the United States, would have to borrow $7.2 trillion through 2021 to pay the bills that are coming due from the Obama administration's spending policies. Borrow is a fun word. It means to get from somewhere else and pay it back. So I pose you this question. Who is the United States going to borrow American dollars from? China? Are we going to convert our money into British pounds and then pay it back? Nope. We are going to issue treasury bills, bonds, or notes, and then when they are due, we'll pay it because it's our goddamn money and we print it. You could cut out the treasury securities altogether and just, you know, type in a bunch of zeros. Like I say, we can't borrow our own money. That's like me saying, oh man, my rocket ship is going to cost how many vouchers? Uh, I'm going to have to borrow some vouchers. Better print some vouchers. Borrow. Fun word. If you haven't thought it yet, perhaps right now you are. If the money that goes out multiplies, you know, the money multiplier debt funnel thing, then why do we slash spending in a recession? Shouldn't we be trying to get more money out so it multiplies? Doesn't that handicap the U.S. government if the economy is like, whoa, we got to tighten our belts and the U.S. is just like, whew, thanks for the warning. Yeah, I was about to go all in and flex my spending power to try to boost things. But, you know, you're right. Even though your ass-backwards debt economy that's run by 12 private banking institutions got us into this shit, I'm going to listen to you because... Man, are you sure I shouldn't spend any money? There are people in, like, food lines, and it's a pandemic, and the economy is like, nah, you know who needs that money? Airlines. And then the U.S. is like, wait, but then the Fed is wiring money over to the airlines. Running the federal government the way you would run your household finances or the way you would run your business is completely the opposite way that things should work for a government. What would you do if the economy slowed? You would cut back on unnecessary expenses and probably shop at Aldi if you don't already. Let us again turn to the fake vouchers that I'm thinking of making for my daughter. I have my sovereign fiat currency in full circulation and things are booming. I got some mega neon pets that are attracting a lot of attention. I got action all over the place and I don't really have to do anything. It's just a game, really, and I don't give a shit about any of it. I mean, the money is fake and playing the game has nothing to do with actually running the game. It's just kind of a thing that's going on in the background. If there is a hiccup, a reason that the voucher flow and in-game currency slows... That doesn't really affect me. The vouchers coming in mean what to me exactly? They are not a measure of how many of my own worthless vouchers I have available to me, but a measure of how the players are using and accessing those worthless vouchers that, to them, are very important. If some players are worried about holding onto their vouchers, how do I get them to put more into the game? And if certain players simply stop playing, then how do I get them to play again? Well, you don't get anyone to play by restricting voucher flow. That just makes vouchers harder to get and people more likely to hold on to them, not redeeming them and spreading them. But if you just credit Roblox accounts, that doesn't really solve the underlying problem. I'd probably have to get creative and considerate with how I decide to inject vouchers into the system. Probably not by rewarding those with the most vouchers, but by figuring out why the players whose activity has slowed or the inactive players have fallen to the side. The inverse is also true. If Roblox is going along like mad, player spending and trading and everything looks great, then I can just kind of chill out. I don't need to flood my players with vouchers because they're doing just fine, but I don't need to try and collect as many of their vouchers as possible. I don't fucking need them. But if I lose that perspective, if I instead see myself as yet another player in the game, subject to the same rules, 
then I've lost all semblance of sovereignty. I have become bound to the artificial rules imposed on artificial currency because certain very smart players have convinced me to participate instead of oversee because that is all they know how to do. The government does not play Roblox. The government runs Roblox. So who runs the government? By default, people from within the game are elected to run the game, and the same people every election cycle hammer it into us that the fake money must be balanced because, damn it, Mitt Romney and Bernie Sanders are losing sleep over it. Now that last question is perhaps the most important. Who runs the government? In a government of the people, by the people, for the people. We think it's me and you, people like us. But in a government structure created in the image of British Parliament, keeping commoners in check by creating a representative chamber of American aristocrats whose job is to check the power of the commoners, the words of Orrin Hatch are merely modern interpretations of colonial rhetoric that the wise and wealthy could run the country better. Sure, let the commoners have some democracy, but we shall control the republic. And because you're like, wait, didn't this chapter start with something completely different? And I'm like, but did it though? I'll bring it back. At the end of intermission, I raised a question. If the perfectly rational economical human is to be assumed because they make the best predictors of behavior, then what's to say we haven't been groomed as a society to be predictable? While in many ways human behavior confounds economists, see GameStop, our behavior is somewhat more predictable to those who actually pay attention to how humans really behave instead of postulating about how they should behave. Take, for instance, this excerpt from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Quote, Avarice and ambition in the rich, in the poor, the hatred of labor, and the love of present ease and enjoyment are the passions which prompt to invade property, passions much more steady in their operation, and much more universal in their influence. Wherever there is great property, there is great inequality. For one very rich man, there must be at least 500 poor, and the affluence of the few supposes the indigence of the many. The affluence of the rich excites the indignation of the poor, who are often driven by want and prompted by envy to invade his possessions. It is only under the shelter of the civil magistrate that the owner of that valuable property which is acquired by the labor of many years, or perhaps of many successive generations, can sleep a single night in security. He is at all times surrounded by unknown enemies whom, though he never provoked, he can never appease, and from whose injustice he can be protected only by the powerful arm of the civil magistrate continually held up to chastise it. The acquisition of valuable and extensive property, therefore, necessarily requires the establishment of civil government. Where there is no property, or at least none that exceeds the value of two or three days' labor, civil government is not so necessary. Civil government supposes a certain subordination, but as the necessity of civil government gradually grows up with the acquisition of valuable property, so the principal causes which naturally introduce subordination gradually grow up with the growth of that valuable property. Men of inferior wealth combine to defend those of superior wealth in the possession of their property, in order that men of superior wealth may combine to defend them in the possession of theirs. All the inferior shepherds and herdsmen feel that the security of their own herds and flocks depends upon the security of those of the great shepherd or herdsman, that the maintenance of their lesser authority depends upon that of his greater authority, and that upon their subordination to him depends his power of keeping their inferiors in subordination to them. They constitute a sort of little nobility who feel themselves interested to defend the property and to support the authority of their own little sovereign in order that he may be able to defend their property and to support their authority. Civil government, so far as it is instituted for the security of property, is in reality instituted for the defense of the rich against the poor, or of those who have some property against those who have none at all. End quote. Those in the little nobility see the interests of the wealthy, the inherited or market-one aristocracy, as their own. The protection of great wealth means the protection of little interests. Up to this point, I have targeted Republicans and conservatives for the inconsistency in their ideologies, but they do have good company. The Democrats in modern times have become what we would historically call moderate or centrist Republicans. If both parties are the liberal parties, Democrats have shifted right, not on social values, not in rhetoric at least, but their policies belie their rhetoric, but on market and foreign policies, and Republicans have moved further right. Both can be said to exist no longer on the, quote, liberal spectrum, but on the neoliberal spectrum. The parties have been inconsistent in policy. Paul Ryan, 
famous for bashing Obama's wasteful spending, left the Trump administration with record-breaking spending in his wake, none of which actually matters, mind you, but they have been predictable. Quote, men of inferior wealth combine to defend those of superior wealth in the possession of their property in order that men of superior wealth may combine to defend them in the possession of theirs. Smith's words call into mind the decision we face every election cycle, the choice between two evils. So dispossessed of not only property but also of options, we pose no real threat, no opposition to the opulent minority whose permanent position in society is to keep the commoners in check. We all are of inferior wealth, both in the practical and in the abstract, and we hope that their wealth protects what little we have. And in the abstract, there is significant wealth. For those of no social wealth, the underrepresented, disabled, LGBTQI+, and black, indigenous, and people of color, the abstract wealth they defend speaks the language of autonomy. Politicians promise the defense of social wealth and fail to deliver time after time, robbing those whose votes they court. Freedom from nothing less than brutality. And for those who look like me, the little nobility, the social wealth they defend violently if they perceive it's in peril is nothing less or more than superiority, holding at least imaginary power over the other. We are discussing something so abstract now we can't even imagine how we got here, but Lee Atwater will tell us. But before I cue up the words of Lee Atwater, an editorial, what Lee Atwater is about to say is disgusting. It is also perhaps the most important confession of a Republican strategist, or really any political strategist, of the 20th century. It is a direct link between how we discuss politics today, economics and even social issues in the 21st century, and how we discuss them in the 20th century. It's an example of how things have morphed and changed and turned abstract over time, where we now believe we're discussing economics we're really talking about race. So, trigger warning. Lee Atwater is going to use racist language. With great hesitation and deep regret, Lee Atwater. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a statistician or a political scientist. Or, no, as a psychologist, which I'm not. Is, is how abstract you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out and... Yeah, now y'all are quoting me. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that, we, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. Uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than never, never. You know. So I, any way you look at it, race is coming on the back burner. And the parody of today's conservative party is that they have taken this old rhetoric, divorced it of its racism, and they pass it today for sound policy. The irony is that it attracts those hurt most by it, the American poor, by promising something it cannot deliver for them, real money wealth. Whereas at one time in American history, we could be explicitly racist. We now code it in economic language. There is implicit wealth understood by white Americans, that of racial superiority, and there is an explicit wealth, that of money and jobs creation through conservative fiscal policy. But conservative economic policy will never enrich anyone other than the wealthy. But reaching across all of it is that fundamental kernel of truth in Atwater's statement that if you can't abstract the language enough, you can make people vote against not just the interest of the other, but also their own. Inequality itself becomes abstract. If we are all deprived, then what you do about it determines your superiority. Did you lift yourself out of poverty? Then there is no such thing as inequality. Has deteriorating infrastructure left you without power and water in a climate change-related blizzard in the middle of Texas? Not only are you on your own, but if you're not on your own, then you aren't American. 
Tim Boyd, Republican mayor of Colorado City, Texas, abstracted the relationship with inequality to the point of aligning with the will of God during power shortages in his Texas town. And I've tried to record this at least half a dozen times, and I can't do it justice. But the Breakfast Club actually did a really good job. I will read you Tim Boyd's whole statement in full. Let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute. No one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing in capital letters. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout with an exclamation mark. If you don't have electricity, you step up and come up with a game plan to keep your family warm and safe. If you have no water, you deal without and think outside of the box to survive and supply water to your family. If you are sitting at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for someone to come rescue you because you're lazy, it's a direct result of your raising. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Folks, God has given us the tools to support ourselves in times like this. This is sadly a product of a socialist government where they feed people to believe that the few will work and others will become dependent for handouts. Am I sorry that you have been dealing without electricity and water? Yes, I can't tell, Tim. But I'll be damned if I'm going to provide for anyone that is capable of doing it themselves. We have lost sight of those in need and those that take advantage of the system and mesh them into one group. Bottom line, quit crying and looking for a handout. Get off your ass and take care of your own family. End quote. And now we have another piece of the conservative puzzle. What do you blame when people expect anything, and I mean anything, from the government? Socialism. Socialism literally has zero meaning in the year 2021 or 2022. If you don't like something, it is socialist. I don't know any other way to describe it. I mean, the idea is so foreign to us that the traditional definition, public ownership, doesn't translate. Up to this point in the book, the description of wealth and property has been focused on private ownership. Ownership of property does not confer what Americans think, and because of this, perhaps it no longer means what it means. Ownership of property is not the shit that you and I own. My computer, my shoes, my car, or your kayak, your espresso maker, your Air Force Ones, not private property. Property ownership refers not only to real estate, but all the rights attached to the ownership of real estate. The capitalist assumption is that the landowner, in their infinite wisdom, will seek the highest and best use, and therefore highest possible profit, for the use of their property. When the owner of private property hires a worker, the owner holds all the rights to the labor. Wages paid are for labor only. The owner has the right to profit off the labor, which is represented by the price of the final product. The laborer, because they don't have any rights to the products they make or the services they provide, are only guaranteed wages for their labor. You are not guaranteed health care or education or retirement or pension or time off. Wage labor comes with minimal government requirements. FICA taxes paid by the company, a total break time of one hour within an eight-hour day, regulatory requirements by bodies like OSHA, which are enforced to an absurdly low degree and are at constant threat of being reduced or eliminated. You may be wondering, what if a company doesn't own real estate, or what if a company works across state lines remotely via the internet? Private property now transcends physical property like real estate. It confers ownership to the corporation for whatever it determines is its property and the things created by its ownership. Owning servers, like large internet corporations do, means that everything on those servers is technically private property. You have access to it through user agreements, but you give up your fundamental right of ownership. Some may argue this point, but the mining of your metadata is evidence enough that you do not own the information you make public. Private property is wholly distinct from personal property. Those are the things that you and I own. To call something socialist is, in the 21st century, meaningless. It is a slur with no relevance to any politics. The abstraction of wealth and the accumulation of wealth and power is now so free of its earthly body that we, the commoners, can be left to strip it from ourselves and deliver it to the aristocratic class whose function is to protect itself from us. The poor, the indebted, the hungry, those without power and water, left without clean drinking water and insufficient or failing infrastructure. While the physical property has diminished as Madison said it would, the private property of mass wealth has ballooned. The idea of driving money, imaginary money no less, to address these very real inequalities is frightening to those who possess the most. An infrastructure project with an enormous price tag, such as the estimated $1.5 billion to fix Flint, Michigan's water supply, 
had no upside to those with unrestricted access to clean water and downsides all around. Will they be taxed more to pay for it? Unnecessary, but that's the belief system in which we practice reality. Where would that $1.5 billion have gone? Likely plumbers and general contractors, road workers, landscapers, engineers, architects. Not those holders of great wealth, the infinitely wise and well-educated. That money might enter the functioning economy of absolutely no use to those who participate in a different economy. Protecting the opulent minority from the majority is no small task. One thing the thinkers of the 18th century didn't predict was how prolifically and creatively we'd be able to deliver on the understanding that civil government, so far as it is instituted for the security of property, is in reality instituted for the defense of the rich against the poor. So, what is a dollar? It's a derivative of debt, a deficit. And controlling the deficit is power. Everything else is maintenance. You just finished listening to Chapter 5 of Unfuck the Poor, What is a Dollar? in two parts because it was a long chapter. You're a trooper. You can find extensive show notes on this chapter, including all footnotes, references, and additional media at askaleftist.com. The next chapter goes even further back in time to World War II and the atomic bomb. Yes, we're still talking about economics. But you know what? Since you listened to this full episode... How about a little end-of-chapter bonus? It's time for the Unfuck the Poor Fun Fact Zone. Where are they now? Fates of the Founding Fathers. George Washington, prolific slave owner, is on the $1 bill. The $2 bill is on the quarter, and he's dead. Alexander Hamilton, marketed as an abolitionist, also a slave owner. He's on the $10 bill, the original $2 bill, and he's dead. Andrew Jackson, prolific slave owner, forced relocation of American Indians. He's on the $20 bill. He also appeared on the $5, $10, $50, and $10,000 bills, and lots of other coins and papers. Also dead. Ulysses S. Grant married the daughter of a slave owner. He's on the $50 bill and he's dead. Benjamin Franklin, slave owner. Apparently, he liked kites. He's on the $100 bill, he's on the $2 bill, and he's dead. James Madison, slave owner. $5,000 bill. Dead. Thomas Jefferson, prolific slave owner. Died in debt. $2 bill. Dead. Robert Morris Jr., asshole. Slave shipper and trader. Died in debt. Probably put his stupid face on Morris notes. I don't know. He's also dead. Dishonorable mention. Patrick Henry, James Monroe, John Jay, John Marshall, Samuel Chase, John Hancock, Benjamin Harrison, John Dickinson, William Floyd, George Mason, Joseph Hughes, John Penn, Edward Rutledge, Thomas Hayward, Thomas Lynch Jr., Arthur Middleton, William Packer, Thomas Stone, Charles Carroll, George Wythe, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Nelson Jr., Francis Lightfoot Lee, Carter Braxton, Button Gwinnett, Lyman Hall, Benjamin Rush, George Taylor, Caesar Rodney, George Reed, Phillips, Philip Livingston, Francis Lewis, Lewis Morris, Richard Stockton, John Witherspoon, Francis Hopkinson, John Hart, Abraham Clark, Josiah Bartlett, William Hooper, William Whipple, Stephen Hopkins, and Oliver Walcott. 49 of the 64 founding fathers owned slaves, and they're all dead now. You could say that's just how it was back then, but it wasn't. Laura Letterer notes in Modern Slavery, a documentary and reference guide, that on February 18, 1688, in Germantown, Pennsylvania, the petition, A Minute Against Slavery, drafted and signed by Francis Pastorius and other Quakers, was presented at the monthly meeting of the Religious Society of Friends, calling on their fellow Quakers to look inside their conscience and abandon the practice of slavery. So, I think it's fair to say that Pastorius had probably been thinking about it a while, and the guys who signed it with him had probably also talked about it for a while. I think it's also fair to say that some people just never got on board with slavery, while others seem okay with just brushing it off as normal for the day. The public speech against it would say that, even in the day when it was practiced, it was not generally accepted by everyone, and therefore, as conscious humans now, we should not be so ignorant as to say it is not acceptable now, but it was then because it wasn't acceptable then, and we don't have to respect men who owned slaves. Not at all. They were pricks. Other colonists thought they were pricks, too. <laughs>